You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Acts chapter 6, we're looking at verses uh, 1 through 7. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. Uh, here's the Word of God for us, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint from the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer into the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Armenus, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, I ask that you would come and speak through your word. Um, pray, Father, that your spirit would be present and that you would remove any kind of hindrance that would um, seek to stop us from hearing from you. Lord, you have such a, um, a unique and powerful way of speaking to a, a group of people. Lord, you know everything, and you see everything, and we know that you are all-powerful. Um, so, Father, we know that you have the ability by your Spirit to come and encourage those who need to be encouraged, and to strengthen those who feel weak, and to rebuke those who are running off in rebellion, that and then some. And Father, we ask that you would come and do just that, and that you would turn um, the attention of our hearts and minds to the cross of Jesus. Uh, we know that at the cross of Jesus, Father, that's where you came and dealt with the problem of sin. You gave us the, the way to uh, come to you and to be in relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray that you would um, remind us of the gospel this morning as we study this passage. Remind us of the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb of Jesus and the promise that we have of the eternity in your presence. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. So hey, as, as, uh, as I read this text, it's not like it's a text that most of us probably haven't heard or maybe read a few times or gone to. Um, there's, a, there's a pretty simple message going on in the text that we just read. Um, there's a need for leaders, um, qualified leaders, um, to deal with uh, some of the ministry issues in the early church. And so... Um, that's, that's a way that you can get after the text. You can spend some time thinking and talking about what it, what it looks like to have qualified leaders in a church. And I think that's very appropriate. I think we've actually done some of that um, plenty of times as we've either come to this text or uh, many other texts as well. There's something else going on in, in the passage too. And, and maybe just admitting up front that it could be uh, partially... Um, coloring the way that I um, interacted with the text this week as I prayed my way through it and just wrote out some of my thoughts. So um, 
I'm going to trust and pray that God uses it for uh, our good. Um, one, the thing that I really saw in the text, behind the text, was conflict. Um, I don't know if it's something that just kind of immediately pops up when you think about it, but it's there. Um, one of the things that I thought of this week is um, I was thinking about unresolved conflict and how destructive that can be. Um, I think that unresolved conflict is often at the center of broken relationships. When you think about the world that we live in right now, there's broken relationships and conflict unresolved all over the place. Um, you don't have to look very far on your news feeds or your social media feeds um, to find that. In fact, most of us can probably look right across the dinner table in our homes sometimes to find some unresolved conflict that might need to be dealt with. Um, this is also why there's a legal term that is used um, in divorce court when people get divorced, right? The legal term that is typically used is unreconcilable differences. Um, this is unresolved conflict. Now, I'm sure that m probably most of us have experienced this, like I said, or, or maybe are experiencing some of this uh, in relationships. Um, maybe you've experienced a relationship that couldn't be salvaged because of some kind of unresolved conflict. Um, usually, I think I notice, and you might notice this too, I notice that most conflict and a lot of unresolved conflict um, typically revolves around something small, right? That, that probably could have been worked out. Um, some hurt feelings over a harsh word, um, failed expectation, forgotten commitment maybe, or, or a neglected duty of some kind. It just goes unresolved, right? Maybe just a simple misunderstanding can oftentimes, if it's not resolved, lead to a pretty massive break in a relationship. Um, on the other hand, sometimes there's also conflict that is so toxic and so destructive that it can't be resolved, I would say, this side of heaven without a, a really miraculous intervention from God, right? You think of things like uh, marital infidelity, you think about abuse of any kind, you think about maybe if one party is unwilling to reconcile, um, or, or, or if you have somebody that is refusing to repent, refusing to pursue change uh, in their life. These things are, can become very toxic and hard to move through. Um, either way, I'm sure that we would probably all agree um, that when a relationship falls apart, it's usually because of unresolved conflict, right? It's not, not being dealt with. And I think when you think about this in terms of the church, when you think about the early church, you think about the fact that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, right? My problem is not with the person across the table from me. My, my problem really is with something going on in the spiritual realm around me. Now, I often personally get that really, really wrong. Okay, I don't know about you, but I, I can be uh, very quick to speak. I can be very quick to, to anger um, rather than slow to speak and quick to listen. Um, I can arrive at a place where I probably shouldn't be in a conversation and just want to take somebody's head off, right? And, and, and uh, I could probably tell you story after story of times when I did take somebody's head off, not literally, figuratively speaking, okay? Um, usually with my words. So I think about this, and I, I even think about the, the, the triangle. Have you ever seen the illustration of the triangle when you're doing marriage counseling? And when you think about marriage, that, you know, when, 
when the two of you meet each other, if you if you have a significant other, you ever been in a relationship like that? You're you're looking at each other and you're like, whoa, she's hot. Oh, he's handsome. However that may go, and they, so you're you're attracted to one another, right? And and eventually, what happens is conflict sets in, and and pretty soon now you're kind of looking at each other like, oh, I hate your guts. I don't like you. You did this. You said that. So on and so forth. Part of the way that we are to heal that is by looking upwards to Jesus. And if we both meet there, and we're both receiving grace and mercy and forgiveness and love from the Father in Jesus and his work at the cross, then, then we actually meet there at Jesus and we're able to extend that to one another. Otherwise, if you're just kind of looking across at the horizontal playing field at each other, you're just in a horizontal way trying to fix something that maybe is not being repaired properly, and that's why we want to look vertically to Jesus, right? So I even think of that illustration as I think of what Satan loves to do in terms of unresolved conflict. We think about Satan in this battle that we fight, that the the conflict that we experience is really not with one another, but it's due to a spiritual battle going on in the background. Then think about the fact that Satan loves to destroy anything that is meant to reflect the goodness and the faithfulness of God in this world. Right? That's what he loves to do. That's what he's been doing since day one. Marriages, friendships, business partnerships, churches, small groups, leadership teams, families, the list goes on and on. Anything that has to do with a relationship or has relationship at the core, Satan's going to get after that because God has designed it to reflect himself to the world. God literally designed relationships to be a reflection of his own triune relationship between himself Son and the Spirit. So therefore, I think that relationships are one of Satan's primary targets. You go all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. You have them standing in front of the tree of good and evil, right? And Eve takes the fruit, listens to the serpent, and Adam is just standing there passively not saying a word. From the get-go, we have issues in relationship. And then their kids, they pass this on to their kids, don't they? Pretty soon... Their two sons are kind of at each other's throats, and one of them gets murdered with a rock. And the story goes on and on, all the way through human history. Every relationship that has ever existed or ever will exist has been affected by this. And I think that one of Satan's main weapons of, I would call, weapons of mass destruction, right? This would be the weapon of unresolved conflict. And and at the core of that, there's always a problem to be resolved. It's not getting resolved, right? Hence the term, unresolved conflict. So if you look at the text, that's one of the first things that you see. If you're looking at it through this lens, you'll see kind of a problem that causes the conflict. What was the problem? Think about that for a minute. In verse 1, Luke tells us that the early church, right, it was growing at a really steady rate. And God's church is doing some really great things. Look at the first six chapters and just look at all the times the church has grown and kind of exploded and people are coming to Jesus It's growing at a steady rate, and then what happens? Problem comes up. And there's already been problems, right? They've been attacked from the outside, been attacked from the inside, been attacked from the outside again, and now Satan's bringing something up from the inside once again, stirring up significant conflict in the church. What was the conflict over? If you read it, you learn that there were some complaints that were being leveled from one side of the church at the other And I think it's almost as though one side was probably lobbing bombs at the other side, right? Something had gotten so bad at this point that they were angry with each other. They were hurt. And regardless of whether one party intended to hurt the other or not, one party was definitely hurt. 
and the other party was to blame. That's all there is to it. Um, you can look at the language that's there. You can go back to the original languages. You can study some commentaries. And there's, there's some disagreement over whether this, this, uh, this conflict was intentional or unintentional. It's pretty hard, tough to tell. Um, at the end of the day, there was conflict, though. Somebody was hurt, and somebody was to blame. And in this scenario, um, and I'm certain this probably isn't the only time that something like this happened in the early church, but in this specific scenario, if you do the study, you find that, and it's, it's pretty clear on the page, right? You have these Hellenists. Who are they? Uh, the Hellenists are Greek-speaking Jews. So if you remember that, that may not make a lot of sense to us in our culture today, um, but you have Greek-speaking Jews, right? They're the camp that's been hurt, and they've been hurt by the Hebrews. And the Hebrews would be called uh, Aramaic-speaking Jews. And again, you might be like, why does that even matter? Um, and what was taking place is the one party, the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, were being neglected by the Aramaic-speaking Jews, right? Neglected in the daily distribution of what? Most likely food, physical needs, financial support. That was what was taking place. Um, when, you, when you look at the two camps, the Greek-speaking Jews would have been seen as the minority in the congregation. Okay? They, they, there were maybe a few hundred of them versus the Aramaic-speaking Jews who were the majority. And, and on top of that, um, the, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, they would have been viewed as like second-rate citizens maybe. Um, so, second-rate citizens, whereas those who spoke Aramaic, they were the traditional Jews, okay? So you have these two groups, and so one smaller, more the minority than the other. And what's happening is the minority is being overlooked, possibly even mistreated by the majority. So just think about that in terms of the conflict in this church family. Those who had already been marginalized, the, the smaller group, the minority, they had been marginalized not only by society at large because of the language that they spoke, but they were also marginalized by their circumstances, thinking about that. Marginalized by the fact that they were now widows. Um, and now you could say they're being re-marginalized one more time by their brothers and sisters in Christ. Think about how painful that would be, right? Those whom they worshipped with throughout the week simply were not exhibiting godly levels of care. And the result of that was some really deeply hurt feelings and some really badly unresolved conflict. That's what's taking place. You think about the pain of rejection and the, the pain of betrayal, the pain of neglect that was probably taking place in this situation. And I think it's becoming too much to bear for those who were being heard. They, they couldn't ignore it anymore, so they began to complain. Now, the word complaint that is used here is not like the typical word complain that we would normally think of when we think of complain, right? Um, like, I was complaining about my ankle yesterday hurting because we walked a long distance. It's not that kind of complaining. Um, this is more like a very legitimate accusation. You could say that carries that sense to it. This is not the typical complaint that you'd see maybe in the Western church today, the average churchgoer, things that you might hear about. Um, 
this isn't like the trivial complaint that you hear in, in, that splits Western churches all the time, right? You hear things about like music style, and churches argue over that. You hear about um, churches getting divided over the color of the carpet being chosen. Um, people get upset because of the food that was served at the potluck. They didn't get enough of it or they didn't like it or whatever that might be. Um, don't like the preacher's style of clothing. Sorry about that. Don't know what to say. <laughs> or you know, didn't like the way the bathrooms got remodeled. I think we faced that specifically. Um, just weird stuff. You know, you just go, really? That's what divided y'all? That's what you guys started arguing about? It's not that kind of a complaint. Okay, that's my point. We hear those kinds of stories often, but that's not what's taking place here. The problem here and the conflict here is actually real. Okay? The widows are not being cared for properly. And the problem had not been resolved yet, so somebody needed to do something about it, right? What do they need to do? Somebody needs to come up with a plan to resolve the conflict. And that's the second thing you see, is there is a plan to actually resolve the conflict. Isn't that nice? You know what I mean? When you realize there's been some unresolved conflict, and then somebody steps in, they go, well, here's a plan to like, resolve that and bring peace to the situation. Um, I think the scriptures say, you know, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. Um, peacekeepers just kind of make everybody happy or try to keep everybody happy and then realize they can't keep everybody happy and then they wind up in a really bad place. Peacemakers actually do a lot of hard work um, to resolve conflict. And that's what we see taking place here in verses 2 through 4. The complaints of uh, the, the Hellenistic Jews reach the apostles' ears. And what they do is they put together a plan to resolve the conflict. And here's what they do. They call together the church family, right? They get a big meeting together. And in that meeting, they ask the church family to choose some qualified leaders to serve the needs of the widows. Now, I think it's important when you think about this, it's important to note that all the apostles were there, right? All 12 of them, number one. Um, and number two, they didn't just ignore the problem. Uh, anybody here ever guilty of just ignoring the problem and hoping it'll go away? Right? You know, you get up in the morning and you got a big fat pimple on your face and you're just like, no, nah, that's going to go away. <laughs> you know? I mean, do something about that. Get a plan. I don't know what kind of plan you want to get. We'll stop talking about pimples, but you just ignore the problem. You wish it would go away. Um, I right now have a problem with my backyard. It's an absolute mess because we had trees come down last year and I'm embarrassed to let anybody see my backyard, but truth be told, I haven't put together a plan to take care of the problem yet either. It still looks terrible. They didn't ignore the problem. Notice, too, that they didn't like, just try to be the answer to the problem. Anybody else have that problem? Where you're like a fixer, and every problem, you have to be the one to go fix it? Like, and, and, you know, I don't... I don't know if anybody else has ever been on the other side of that, where you're like, man, I just feel like I'm the problem that that dude or that chick wants to fix all the time, and I'm kind of tired of it. We're not really friends, you know? Um, so they didn't do that. They didn't just try to be the answer to the problem. They didn't run out and start delivering food and supplies to the widows. Although I, it's possible, <laughs> if, you, if you think about this, um, it's possible there could have been some in the community who were like, hey, yo, you guys are the apostles. You got the big titles. Why don't you go take care of the problem? Why do we have to come to another meeting just to deal with the problem, right? 
They didn't do any of that. I would say, uh, you know, I think it's like a stroke of supernatural wisdom here that's taking place um, with the apostles to actually engage the church family in a plan that could bring resolution to the conflict. Now, all too often, I think churches become stunted in their growth. Think about this. They become stunted in their growth when leaders lack the courage to confront unresolved conflict. Or, or I think they become stunted in their growth when those leaders try to be the hero who like, meets every need that arises. Or I think they become stunted in their growth when a church full of members refuse to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ while expecting what I would say like paid staff to do the work. These are all ways that I think church families can get really, really unhealthy and really toxic. But I think this boils down to the family level too, doesn't it? Notice this too. Um, when you're looking at the text and you think about it, notice that the apostles, they didn't instruct the church to just pick any old group of people they saw fit to pick. This is another problem in churches today. Um, it becomes kind of like a popularity vote, right? Hey, let's get some deacons in the church. Who hasn't been a deacon yet? You? You should be a deacon then. You've been here for like three months. You're like a warm body with a Bible. <laughs> it's crazy. And then you get unqualified people in leadership um, who don't lead well. Um, other times, uh, I think churches will do this too. They'll, they'll be like, hey, you own a business, and so you must have some business savvy, so you should be a leader then. Um, without ever checking the actual qualifications that should be in place. Now, the apostles here, they laid out biblical qualifications for leaders that the church was to choose. What were they? Look at it. Uh, They also identified how many leaders they needed to. So there's those two. You've got qualifications. You've got how many leaders you need. The church needed to choose how many? Seven, right? Seven leaders um, for this work. And then the qualifications. What were the qualifications? They had to be men with good reputations. That's a pretty big deal. Need to have a good reputation. Um, this doesn't mean these men were perfect, but they should have a good reputation. Part of the way that I try to communicate that when I'm communicating that to leaders that we're trying to raise up is this. You need to have a reputation that shows that you're following Jesus and actively walking in repentance. This does not mean perfection. Churches that look for perfection wind up putting men in positions of leadership who just cover up all their faults and hide them in the background. That's the last thing you need. On the flip side of that, you also don't need to have men in leadership who just simply don't have any godly character and we just don't care whether they do or not. So there is a tension in that. And in between there, I think it's the godly walk of repentance, that good reputation. Secondly, they're to be spirit-filled believers, right? What does that mean? I think it means that they should be super Christians. Anybody agree with me? Not one of you. Well, you do, okay. Got one. (coughs) I think that's how we oftentimes approach the text, though, isn't it? That in, in your seat, you might sit there and go, I don't know if I'm a good enough Christian to be a leader. What you're by default saying is that position is only good enough for a super Christian. Right? Qualifications are important. But a spirit-filled believer is not somebody who is a super Christian. I think we've already established that there, are, there is no such thing. There's only one. His name was Jesus, right? So what does this being filled with the Spirit mean? I think it simply means that they're a believer. 
And you might ask, well, can you tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever? Well, yes, you can, right? Um, would it shock any of you to think about some people who appear to be believers but actually aren't? That wouldn't shock us, would it? So you start thinking about what do we look for when we're looking for a Spirit-filled believer? One of the things I look for is the fruit of the Spirit. Um, out of Galatians, that's a real low-hanging one, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, right? Do they love the Word? Do they love God's Word? Are they in God's Word? Are they a prayerful person? Is, is, there, is there a spiritual depth about them? Are they growing spiritually? Those are just some of the things that I would look for if I'm looking to see if somebody is actually a believer. I'm not looking for perfection. I'm looking for somebody who's on the journey of repentance, right? So I think that's what it means to be a spirit-filled believer here. Uh, the other qualification that, that they list is that they need to exhibit the gift of wisdom, right? need to be wise men. Somebody tell me, what's the opposite of being wise? Foolish, right? You don't have to look too far today to look into the headlines of churches to see that we have probably put a lot of fools in pulpits. And I would admit there have been times I have been very foolish too. I'm not always the wisest person. But I hope to God that I don't lead a lifestyle that says that dude is just absolutely foolish. I would hope that the leaders we put in place would not say that either. So you need to have a wise person. Um, these men need to be able to put knowledge into action. That's the other thing. I think sometimes we can think that somebody is very wise because they have a crap ton of head knowledge. But knowledge doesn't mean anything unless you put it into action in your life. And so when you're looking for somebody who's actually wise, you're looking for somebody who takes all of this knowledge and applies it to their life first. Um, one of the sayings about leadership is that leaders always go first. Last thing um, that I think is important to notice here is that the apostles knew that they had a specific job to do. I think that's actually kind of fascinating and interesting. It's very good. It's something that I struggle with at times, too. Um, I have a tendency to be a bit of a fixer. I also have a tendency to be an overworker and a tendency to be somebody who, um, if I see something not getting done, rather than try to get somebody else to do it, because that takes a long time. I just could do it myself. It, it, but that's, that's not the calling of a pastor. And so I've had to learn a lot about that, and I'm still on that journey. Um, this one thing I noticed about the apostles, they knew that they had a specific job to do, right? What was their job? Their job simply was to preach the Word of God, to minister the Word of God in shepherding, and to spend time in prayer, right? It's not that they resisted the opportunity to serve even in menial tasks. It's not that. That would be a false accusation of them. I think it's just that they knew what their job was, and then they didn't want to neglect their job to do someone else's job. And I think there's actually some real deep wisdom in that, right? So what did they do? They equipped the church family, the congregation, to do the practical hands and feet part of the ministry so that they could then remain devoted to the spiritual needs of the church family, right? So you think about every problem we face as a, as a human, right? Just think of yourself as a human for a moment. Every problem that you face in any relationship with somebody has both a very outward, practical, physical need, and then also an inward, supernatural, spiritual need. Both of those have to be met. And this is why God instituted 
the roles of elders, pastors, who are called and wired and equipped to meet spiritual needs, and then deacons who are to meet physical needs. I'll tell you what drives me batty is we are Baptist, right? We're in two different Baptist denominations. I don't know why we did that. Other than we really needed a lot of help. Um, We needed money. (laughs) We needed resources. Um, But you know, uh, if you do a little bit of looking into the Baptistic history, somehow or another, deacons became the top-level role in the church. And I've never been able to figure out how that happened. I've read some of the history books on it. It's like, how did you read this and then somehow arrive at the idea that deacons were supposed to do what they're doing? And so um, today you have unqualified deacon boards in lots of Baptist churches who run pastors out, and you don't have elders. Um, It's usually just a popular group of dudes who maybe have a lot of money or have a lot of influence of people, and it just, oh, it's so unhealthy, right? Um, So that's been interesting and frustrating all at the same time to deal with, um, because, because God instituted these two roles specifically for the church, so the church would be cared for well. And if you neglect one of those roles, one of those needs, to meet the other one, then what happens? Well, it produces unhealthy relationships. That's what happens. Um, you, think about, you think about the biological family, right? Like, I grew up in a single-parent home, and I can tell you about how unhealthy and how bad that was. Um, at times, uh, it wasn't like it was just my mom there. At times, there were these really unhealthy men there. Uh, and there were times where it was just my mom there. Some of you grew up in homes where you had mom and dad, and it was fairly healthy. Some of you grew up in homes where dad was really passive and mom was really over-aggressive, or vice versa. And I think we can all look back into our own like family of origin and go, Yeah, I can see that God placed two different roles in the home, in the family, for a reason. Um, And it doesn't always go so well. The same thing happens in the church. If you neglect one to meet the other, it produces unhealthy relationships, right? In this case, though, the apostles identified the problem, right? It was at the center of the conflict. Uh, They offered a plan to resolve the conflict, and then what did they do? They worked with the church family. Um, and they followed through um, with, with a solution to the problem. They came up with a plan, and, and they, they followed through with a solution. Right? And that's the next thing you see. If you look at verses 5 and 6, you see the, kind of the solution taking place. Um, Luke tells us in verses 5 through 6 that the church approved of the apostles' plan, so I think that's interesting. Right? The apostles didn't just lead with this top-down, authoritarian, I am the boss, thou must do as I tell you to. Um, type of a mentality, which you see that in some church families today too, and it's pretty unhealthy. Um, Luke tells us that the church actually approved of their plan uh, to choose qualified leaders, and then it says that they all prayed and laid their hands on them. Now the question is, is was it just the apostles that all prayed, or was the whole congregation? I think it was everybody prayed over these new leaders. And then they ordained them into the ministry of serving the practical needs of the church, and especially the needs of the Greek-speaking widows who had previously been overlooked, Right? Interestingly, if you take a look at the seven men who were chosen, this is kind of fascinating. Look at the seven men who were chosen to serve. All of their names are Greek names. They're they're Greek-speaking Jews. So you remember who the party was that was being neglected, right? 
Like these men that were chosen, they were chosen from among those who actually issued the original complaint, those who were being neglected. And think about it, they were chosen by a mixture of those who made the complaints, and they were chosen by those who were the object of the complaint. What's my point? Both the neglected and both the neglectors came together and they became the solution to the problem, right? The complainers, uh, they were not immediately discounted and discarded. How often do you do that, right? Husbands and wives, you come home and, I don't know, wife has a complaint because you didn't mow the yard or something like that, or you just kind of discount that and shove that aside and don't do anything about it. That's not what took place here. They weren't discounted. They weren't discarded. You think about the ones who were accused. Uh, They didn't get angry. They didn't sit back refusing to raise a finger. Everyone from the minority and the majority became part of the solution. And these two parties that were recently at each other's throats were now working together towards a common cause. Why? Because I think they're both committed to being the solution rather than perpetuating the problem. That's an important thing. Just that one small commitment being made. That can radically change a relationship, whether it be marriage or friendship or church, or any other. That commitment to being a solution, rather than being part of perpetuating a problem, that's a big commitment. And it's a commitment that has to be proven with action, and not just mere words, don't you think? You know what I mean? Like I, I, I've seen people walk around all day saying, I want to be part of the solution, when, when they really don't, because their actions prove that they're not, right? Continue to be destructive. Fourth thing you notice is the supernatural result. Up until now, we, we've looked at the text through this lens of problems and plans and solutions, right? And all these things are super practical when you think about it, when you look at it. It's kind of like very much uh, kind of rubber hitting the road, so to speak, in relationships. Um, maybe for you, it might feel a little bit like we've taken a little bit of a journey through um, like a counseling 101 class or like a business partnerships class. You might think that as you're looking at it. Um, And there's really nothing wrong with applying those lenses to the text as we're reading it. Um, But it's important not to forget that the Bible is primarily a spiritual book, right? It's not like a book where you just open it and you go, I wonder what passage I'm going to read today, and maybe it's just going to be the answer to all my problems. And there's a sense in which the Bible does do that. But the Bible is not necessarily meant to do that primarily. The Bible is meant to be a spiritual book about God and about His purposes in our lives, right? Uh, All the practical physical problems, all the conflict that we make plans to resolve and to be a solution to will actually, I think, be utterly useless if you don't produce some real spiritual results, don't you think? Another way to say it would be to say that if, if, if my desire is to just cover up a problem, or if my desire is to ignore a problem or dismiss it, or, or, even, or even just to highlight a problem so I can excuse my own unfaithfulness, then the spiritual result is going to be what? Spiritual impotence. Right? You think about spiritual impotence for a minute. You're, you're, you're impotent. You're not, not reproducing, would be a way to say it. It's not, not powerful. Spiritually, there's no power. I think that's exactly what Satan intended here. Don't you think? 
I think that's exactly what he wanted with spiritual impotence in the early church. What he wants in the church today, too. Still actively working at that. You look at verse 7, though. Luke tells us that the Spirit of God reigned in the church. He did that as the, as the, the apostles humbly dealt with the problem that had caused so much conflict. He did that by helping them to propose a plan to resolve the conflict. And in the midst of that, they employed the church family to be the solution to the problem. Why? What's the result? The result is verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's the result of what took place in the church as they handled the conflict well. Imagine what that would look like, not just in a church, but in your own family, or in your own friendships, or in your marriage. That the Spirit of God would be at work in resolving the conflict of the problems that are under the surface that maybe we have a tendency to ignore or cover up or excuse. In this story, one of the things that you see is that Satan's plan to render the church ineffective through that, what I called weapon of mass destruction, this unresolved conflict, his whole plan proved to be actually impotent against the power of the Spirit-filled church, right? I think that's pretty cool. They were committed to being witnesses of the crucified, risen, and returning Savior. That's what the church was committed to. That was their mission. And what you see here over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts, even all throughout church history, is that Satan is literally no match for the King of Kings. No match for the King of Kings. None whatsoever. You think about all the, the ways that we... You know, Think about all the ways that unresolved conflict can damage us too, right? Like, conflict is painful. That's all there is to it. And to step into conflict is painful. And it's scary. And see, so think about all the ways that we try to avoid the conflict and try to get into something else that we can actually be successful in because the conflict feels unresolvable, right? And we start looking to other things to satisfy that desire for peace, and the reality is what we need to do is ask God to help us to step into that best of our ability by His power and then watch Him do His work. Well, the reality is we don't always experience the kind of results in conflict that we want to experience this side of heaven. And I think that's something that's worth us holding on to. Um, I, in, in my story and in my life, I think most of you in the room probably know my story, right? I, not only grew up in a home of divorce and unhealthy relationships, but I then in my younger years walked through some of the same patterns, did some of the same things. I understand really deeply what that pain feels like to look back and say, hey, there's broken relationships in the past that I know that I did everything that I could by God's power um, to, to resolve and to restore, but I was back to the irreconcilable differences this side of heaven. And there is a, a leader who... I preached a message years ago that I heard, and one of the things, and there's things about, I'll, I'll tell you this, there's things about this leader who preached this message that I absolutely do not like, but there's one thing that he said in the message that I loved. He just kept saying, you know, we're not in heaven yet. Not in heaven yet. We're not in heaven yet. And I've had to hold on to that many times as I look at different relationships um, and just go, you know what? I'll probably be surprised by who I see in heaven. I'm not there yet, and I've done everything that I could do. I need to move forward. So I think that's important to remember that. It's important to remember that 
when Satan thinks that he's got you, the reality is his weapons are no match for the king of kings, right? His weapons are no match for the power of a bloody cross, no match for the power of an empty tomb, no match for the promise of heaven. But when you think about what we've just studied, okay, um, I think it's important for us to pause and to think for a few minutes about the reconciling power of the gospel. Like we've done a pretty thick, heavy, thought-provoking maybe, or maybe it puts you to sleep, I don't know. But <clears throat> we thought our way through some of the heavier aspects of conflict and plans and outcomes and so on and so forth. But you have to think about the reconciling power of the gospel, don't you? when you think about this and when you read this story? Like, think about the greatest problem that actually ever existed. What was the greatest problem? It's not the broken marriage. It's not the lost friendship. It's not the split down the middle church. The greatest problem that actually ever existed, and all these others are just byproducts of it, the greatest problem is sin. That's the greatest problem to ever exist. It's human sin, human rebellion, human disobedience to God's word. And God gives us standards for our lives. And he says, you must live this way. Don't do these things. Do these things. And what do we do? We excuse, right? And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. At the core of that is, is our questioning of God's word. Did God really say that? Right? Does he really mean that for us today? It's not like uh, um, our triune God, though. It's not, it's not like he just at some point um, got together and like held a board meeting in response to the problem of Adam and Eve's sin. It wasn't like Adam and Eve's sin and God was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe they did that. That blows me away. It wasn't that kind of a situation. Um, the Scriptures teach us really clearly, if you do a study of the book of Ephesians and other places, the Scriptures teach us that God actually made a plan, right? But long before the foundations of the earth were ever laid, He made this plan to resolve the conflict of sin. Before He created anything at all, He made that plan to do just that, to resolve the conflict of sin between the two of us. And think about what His plan was, Right? His plan included the participation of His one and only Son, Jesus. Now, I'm thinking if I'm Jesus and I'm in that board meeting room, and you know, God the Father is like, yo, Jesus, I think maybe... You know, obviously, the conversation didn't take place this way, but you know, for, for us to be able to wrap our minds around it, you know, God the Father is like, yo, Jesus, I think this is what we should do. I'm thinking Jesus is like, are you kidding me? I'm going to go die for them. I mean, they're my enemies. Do you know the horrible things they did, Father? You know the horrible things they're going to do? With that kind of conflict, Jesus steps into the middle of that and, and makes himself the sacrifice so that we can be reconciled to God. And not only that, but he would take it a step further, depending on how you get after the topic of faith. The way I get after the topic of faith is, Jesus is the one who wrote the book of faith because he's the author and the perfecter of my faith. He's also the one who, not only the author, but the perfecter, he's the one who makes my faith better. Right? I can't like muster that up. Um, he's also the essence of faith when you, when you look at him. It's who he is. 
And faith is also a gift, just like grace is a gift. So, like, I would have no faith in Jesus if Jesus didn't write it, create it, perfect it, and give it to me. So you think about that in terms of the aspect of the reconciling power of the gospel between two parties that are at war with each other, that Jesus would go to that extent so that you and I would have the opportunity to be in right relationship vertically with our Father. I just I think some of that really thick doctrinal application to my heart, I don't know if you can tell, but even as I think my way right now and talk my way through that, even for me it lifts a heavy feeling. I don't know if it does the same for you. Because it's such a reminder of what my Father was willing to do on my behalf. Now, now, how does that motivate me and enable me to move outward horizontally in relationship with others? Whether it's my wife or my children, church members, friends, or the guy across town that I certainly don't like very much, or whatever it is. How does that then motivate me? I can tell you this. When I look at this whole story and I think about that, I think about this. There's absolutely nothing that I could do in a horizontal relationship with somebody this side of heaven if my relationship with my Father in heaven is not in order first. And so I, I think that's where I want to leave this, is maybe spend a little bit of time there thinking about the work that Jesus did so that you and I could be reconciled so that the conflict could be dealt with, so that peace could be brought between two parties at war with each other. And maybe recognizing that, maybe, maybe what God asks of us in the next few moments is between you and Him, as we worship and as we receive communion, as we get time in prayer, maybe there's some healing needs to take place inside of you. Maybe there's some repentance needs to take place inside of you. <clears throat> maybe some of our conversation has brought up specific names or faces for you. And, and maybe some of those faces or names are people that you know you probably have done everything you could to reconcile with and can't do anymore. And maybe you just need to rest in a place of healing where God would give you some healing, right? Maybe there are some places where you, uh, where you have some things you need to own in a conflict or you need part of the solution to at least bring peace, right? It may not mean that you're going to be close friends with whoever moving forward. But maybe there are some pieces there that you need to deal with. Um, I can tell you this, that journey that we did it the opposite way, we, we looked at all the mess of conflict before we landed on the gospel. My hope is that in the next few moments, between you and the Lord, that you just spend time at the foot of the cross for a bit, right? And let the Spirit and, um, do some work inside of you, work of healing, a work of challenge. Um, Maybe a work of repentance, confrontation, conviction, those kinds of things. And maybe in the midst of that, maybe you write down a note somewhere on your phone, your iPad, or in your notebook or whatever of, of a step that you need to take uh, as you walk out the door today. I don't know what that step looks like because I don't know your journey. I know mine. I'm going to spend some time doing the same thing as we close. Cool? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you would come in our closing moments and Lead us to the foot of a bloody cross, that place where Jesus' body was broken, blood was shed um, on behalf of us so that we could move from being enemies to becoming family. Lord, help us to spend some time in the doorway of an empty tomb um, where we um, 
are able to see the power that you have over Satan's sin and the grave. Be reminded once again that you are all-powerful. There is nothing that is impossible for you. Um, also, finally, Father, uh, fill our hearts with hope. Remind us that uh, this world that we live in, that we are walking through and journeying through, uh, no matter how painful and scary it can be at times, um, Father, remind us once again that we're just traveling through. This place ain't our home. We're headed towards a place called heaven where there's no more tears, no more mourning, no more sin, no more death. Pray, God, that you would encourage us that promise and renew our hope once again. Trust that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.